This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. David Sinclair, welcome to Better Reading. Cheryl, thanks for having me on. I think I have just been crazily excited about speaking to you today to the point where I woke up. I mean, I'm a great sleeper. I'm a seven to eight hour person, sometimes nine hour person straight through. However, this morning I did wake up at 4.30, but it was just pure excitement. It was like, you know, that that feeling of when you're little and waking up to see what Santa Claus has left. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're going to tell me, but then I had to interview you today. <laughs> <laughs> that was what I was excited about. Yeah, no, that's excited. I want to know why you're not a pop star in this country, but we're going to work on that and make sure that everybody knows you through us. And maybe it's just me. You know, it took me a while to, to track you down and find out who you are. But anyway, David Sinclair, PhD, is a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School the founding director of Paul F. Glenn Labs for Aging Research, co-chief editor of the Journal of Aging and co-joint professor, University of New South Wales Medicine. He has received more than 25 awards for his medical research in, and in 2014 he was named by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Wow. Born and educated in Australia, he now resides in New York. Are you in New York or Boston? Um, yeah, mostly Boston. Mostly Boston. In his book, Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To, Dr. Sinclair shares the surprising scientifically proven methods that can help readers live younger and longer and, you know, better lives. Anyway, and I will declare this to our listeners. I was listening to one of my favourite podcasts, Armchair Expert, Dax Shepard, and I'm sure he's not listening, but in case you do, Dax, I love your podcast. And I heard David and what really kind of triggered me was hearing the Australian voice and that's when I thought I've got to track you down. So firstly, talk to me about how a boy from St Ives gets to Harvard. Yeah, uh it surprises me too. So I, yeah, I grew up uh, in the suburbs of Sydney, the northern suburbs, went to St. Ives High, which many people locally call Snives because it used to be pretty snobby, or at least it was thought to be. I'm just a public school guy. But I've always had a passion for figuring out how the world works. And I grew up right on the edge of the bush. My family's house was on a cliff, basically. And if I wanted to go for a walk for three hours, uh, and often I did. I, I would just head off into the bush with my younger brother. Sometimes I'd get lost out there. Um, and it just really inspired me to understand how things work, but with a focus on living things. I, I learned that living things are fascinating. And while machines are pretty interesting, they don't compare to a human body. Uh, the, the human brain is the most complicated thing in the known universe and probably in the entire universe. And so that, those kind of questions have dogged me 
And then uh, I, I became fascinated about human health. I had a grandmother who helped raise me and she uh, would tell me brutally honest truths. I mean, she, she was young and young at heart, having had my father at age 15. So she was in her 40s. Yeah, but wow. uh, I just distinctly remember her saying, David, I'm not always going to be around. And I was really? Yeah, you, I'm going to die. Your parents are going to die. Your cat's going to die. Uh, and you're going to die. So just, um, so th- you know, that might have been a shock that I couldn't get around, uh, get my head around. And maybe that led to my passion for aging research. But my first conscious decision to come to America after uh, getting my degree degrees at uh, UNSW in Sydney, I remember thinking, wow, this new stuff called genetic engineering, we're talking the late 80s here, uh, that's going to solve a lot of health problems. We're not going to get cancer. We're not going to get heart disease. And we may not even have to age as fast. I should say fast. I, I can use my Australian accent with you guys. Yeah, you can. Um, <laughs> Please do. And, uh, yeah, I've still got, got my accent. It's just uh, undercover. Yeah, but, I, yeah I, I, I mean, hear it. <laughs> good, good, good. I, I've really tried not to lose it. I, I really don't, don't like changing my voice. But uh, yeah, anyway, long story short, I needed to come to America to get some job experience. Went to MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, to do some postdoctoral work. And uh, unfortunately for, I guess, for, uh, for my parents who were expecting me to come home after two years, that went very well. And I got a job offer at Harvard because we figured out why yeast cells, you know, cells that you use for baking and brewing, why they age. It was the first true molecular mechanism of aging for any species. And that got me a job at Harvard. And I can tell you, when you get a job offer at Harvard, it's, it's very hard to say no. And so I've been there ever since. And now that's 21 years ago. Wow. Okay, getting back to yeast, in isolation, of course, we've all been making sourdough. Now, I will declare that I started way before COVID, way before I knew COVID even existed. So I've been making my own yeast for a long time. I want you to explain that a little bit further because you talk about it in your book. Yeah. Well, my wife's upstairs making uh, bread with yeast. Uh, They're interesting critters because they, they live life very much like we do. They they struggle to find food. They have to find a mating partner. Firstly, yeah. can I interrupt? Because there's people out there like me, right, who probably need a, a kind of uh, another explanation. So it's the mix of flour and water, just those two ingredients. How does that happen? How does it make bread? No, how does it make yeast? Well, you have to add the yeast. No, I just do flour and water. Really? Yeah, I grew my own yeast. Oh, well, there's the difference. Yeah. Okay, tell me the difference. Uh, well, you can you can add a commercial yeast, or you have your own your own yeast. Yeah, you use own. a starter culture, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. I just used flour and water, and every day I let it sit out until it became yeast. Oh, there you go. So yeast will come in from the atmosphere. Um, there are very of a wide variety of different yeasts that are natural. For my research, I use a domesticated version of yeast that's well characterized, and we know its genome. But yeah, um, the the bread that we have at home also is from wild yeast that was actually collected, I believe, in a Belgian forest. But, yeah, you can, you can pull um, yeast out of the environment. It's all around us. You can find it all over fruit, for example. The yeast that we use is called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and it's found on grapes, and it's naturally on there. So if you just crush grapes, you'll, you'll get fermented mm-hmm. juice. So tell us about the, what you discovered about yeast. <laughs> Yeah, well, so yeah, yeast are similar to us. They, they go through their life and they also get old. It's interesting, right? You, something as simple as a microscopic little round yeast cell that buds and produces little, uh, little other cells. Uh, you wouldn't think it could teach us much about aging, 
because it's so different from us. And uh, But what we decided to do was to just see if we could figure out why yeast cells get old. And they take about a week and then they, they slow down, they become sterile, and then they die. And so it's, it's very similar to some humans. And so what we then figured out actually that was that there are genes that control the aging process in yeast. And if you turn them on or you give it extra copies of those genes, they have a special name. We called them sirtuins. What's exciting about that is a couple of things. One is that these genes were found to be responsible for the benefits of having low amounts of food. And we've known oh, for thousands of years that fasting is good for you. So that's one thing. But I think the more important thing is that we have these genes in our body. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's the exciting thing is that by studying something as simple as a humble yeast cell, we could discover secrets about what controls how long we live and how healthy we are into our old age. When I make my own yeast, right, so every morning I feed it, but I throw half of it out and I put in a couple of tablespoons of fresh flour and some fresh water and that rejuvenates it and gives it a fresher, younger life every time. Can yeah. we apply that to humans? <laughs> Uh, that's a good question, a really good one. I've never been asked that question. <laughs> I think what, what we can apply is the concept that when yeast are hungry, they survive better and they live longer. And so you're, you're probably overfeeding your yeast, it sounds like. They're, they're living a very good life. So they probably have a good life, but a short life. Yes. And because their, their inner defenses against aging are not being activated. And so it would be similar to somebody who is sedentary for most of their life, who always eats three meals a day and snacks. The same thing happens to our bodies. We don't fight against aging the way we would if our bodies had an inkling that there was some adversity potentially coming along. Mm, And exercise also goes into that category, though you cannot exercise a yeast cell. That's pretty hard. But we can exercise mice, and we've even found ways to feed them uh, molecules that mimic exercise they run further and they're healthier into their old age as well by triggering these same things that we learn from yeast are very good for their health and lifespan. Okay. So then you moving further with that research and now from what I understand, you're looking at reversing the aging process through changing, help me with this, through changing your DNA. Is that right? Well, is changing right? how the DNA is controlled. This has right. been the big breakthrough let me use an analogy. Uh, it's true for yeast and it looks like it's true for humans and, and mice, that which we do, we do study in the lab. If the DNA is the music and you and put that on a, on a compact disc, a CD, and for young people, CDs, we used to put things on those uh, and record them, these little discs. I'm, I'm just kidding. I think everyone knows what a CD is. <laughs> well, but they, they do now. <laughs> Not they do. Well, so the, 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 the silver information on a compact disc is similar to our DNA. It's the music of our lives. And every cell has the same music. But why is a nerve cell different than a skin cell and a liver cell? Well, it turns out they play different songs. They don't all play the same music. Um, and as we get older, what happens by this analogy is that the, the disc gets, gets scratched. And now the music is skipping and the wrong songs get played, and it's a horrible cacophony. So that's what we think is aging, is that the DNA, the genes in our bodies, don't get read in the the youthful pattern. And in the brain, genes that should be only on in the skin get turned on. So now your brain cells start to forget how to be brain cells and vice versa. 
So the, the exciting discovery that I talk about in my book and is only just breaking into scientific circles now is that we can polish the CD. We can let the music play beautifully again as though everything was, you know, straight out of the, the box. And in biology terms, what we do is we reprogram the cells in, in the body to read the DNA correctly again. And it's like hitting the reset switch. And now parts of the body, we've done this in mice, and we hope in a couple of years to have started trialing it in people. What we can do is we can treat the eye of an old mouse and an old mouse is blind and we can rejuvenate its eye, turn back the clock, get those cells to remember how to behave. And not only are they acting young, they literally become young and the mice get their vision back. So if you expand this to the rest of the body, potentially we could reverse aging in most, if not all cells in the body, uh, which to me even sounds crazy as I say it, but it, it really does feel, but with my colleagues and I, if you want another analogy that we've built the glider on Kitty Hawk sand dunes and it's flying. And in concept, we know how to build a jetliner. We just need to figure out some sort So how do you propose this happening? Is it a tablet? Is it serum? Is it, how do you yeah. see that? Is it an operation? I mean, how do you see that happening? Right. Well, it's early days. So we have to use uh, relatively complicated methods. So Cheryl, what we do is we take three genes out of the body. We can use three human genes or three mouse genes. And how do we do that? Uh, we, in my lab, it's really easy. Uh, yeah. Any any student can is amplify up gene. We, we have a gene machine that actually just right. can take right. genes out of a sample. I could take your blood and yeah. pull three of your genes out in a matter of hours and have enough to do an experiment. But what we do is literally we package those three genes inside a virus that will infect cells in the eye. It's called a adeno-associated virus, but the name's not important. What's important is that these are viruses that are domesticated. They're used in medicine. They are used to correct genetic defects. And what we're doing is putting three genes that are usually only switched on when we're very young. We put them back into the adult, turn them on. In this experiment, we use an antibiotic to turn them on and off. And so the antibiotic turns on these youthful genes, the cells turn back the clock, and we think permanently, or at least, you know, it's a lasting effect, they stay young and they For work. how long? Well, probably they just need to age out again because they've, their clock is, is reset. Okay. So I've got some questions around this. <laughs> this is, there's ethical questions, obviously, and moral questions. There's all sorts of questions. But I just want to go to some things in my mind that seem kind of like practicalities. So say, for instance, you're like me, you're in your 50s. I'm starting to not have a great memory. You know, sometimes I forget the person's name I want to tell you about or, you know, whatever. Um, and I'm starting to get wrinkles and starting to get grey hair and all of that. So if you have that treatment, that reverses all of that? Is we that will right? see. I mean, in theory, it should work. We can reverse ageing in human nerve cells, human skin cells and the mouse's eye. My colleague, Juan Carlos Belmonte, he's in uh, the, the Institute, Salk Institute in San Diego, has reversed aging in a whole mouse. That mouse lived 40% longer in his experiment. So in theory, yes, we could reverse aging in most different cell types in the body. But I'm a scientist. I don't like uh, you know, saying things that aren't proven. But I think in theory, we've cracked this wide open and they're going to be 
and I'm aware of billions of dollars that are going to be invested into this new science. And you heard it here first, basically, or you can read about it in my book if you want. In probably five years, most people will have heard about this stuff because it's it's exploding. I, I, I can imagine that there'd be every rich person or philanthropist on the planet throwing money at you because the impression that I get from them is that they don't live long enough to acquire as much wealth as they want. That that sense of, you look at Rupert Murdoch, for instance, you know, it's money is just not enough. And well, even Kerry Packer, you know, having died of a disease very early on, if he could have taken that tablet or had that treatment, I can imagine the priority for people like that to live longer is enormous. And then other people, life is hard and maybe they're not that interested. But do you see that business itself is throwing money at this research? Is is that happening? Uh, yes, it is, though. You know, my lab still struggles for funding. Uh, but but in general, hopefully, um, that'll change. But there there is a lot more interest. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not a name dropper, but there are a fair number of billionaires on the planet that I've uh, I've talked to about this, and they're, they're interested. But I don't think this is a topic just for the wealthy you know, there's benefits to every family. If we can improve people's eyesight that have gone blind, that's just one step that will help millions of people. And right now there's nothing you can do for blindness uh, or for loss of hearing and this kind of thing, whereas this offers hope. Cheryl, I just want to make sure I I get this point out because it's an important one. Uh, I'm not doing this to make people older for longer. Uh, It's quite the opposite. I want people to not be fearful of cancer in their 60s and 70s and heart disease. That's the goal. And that in turn leads to longer life, but it's only because we don't get sick. Um, And traditional medicine, Western medicine particularly, focuses on one disease at a time. This is different. This is one medicine that could not just treat your eye, but potentially treat the rest of your body as well. And you ask me, could this be a pill? I mean, absolutely, it could be a pill one day. And uh, you know, we've only had this knowledge for a couple of years in my lab and we've barely told the scientific community. But when there are hundreds of labs working on this, it could easily become a pill one day. And, you know, it it, do, it does sound crazy, right, that one day we could have a pill that not just slows down aging, but reverses it as well. And I agree, it does sound hard to believe. But this work is being published in the world's top scientific journals um, and really taking off. So I, I hope that listeners can read my book and see that it's based in a lot of hard facts. Um, oh, I, I agree. I mean, it's, it's science and, you know, I believe it too. I want to, this is kind of slightly off topic, but slightly on topic. During COVID, you, as, as you know, I mean, we have been tremendously lucky in this country, you know, one, because we're an island and two, because we acted quickly and we haven't seen the pressures on hospital as you have, particularly on the East Coast of America. So we've been particularly fortunate. We're recording, you know, I mean, two, four, you know, 20 cases a day at the most at the moment. We've had a bit of an outbreak in Victoria. But what I have noticed in hospitals, and I have read, there's been a few articles that I've read in the New York Times where there are reporting cases of other illnesses that are less, like, you know, we're seeing less cases of what people used to go to the hospitals for or to the doctors for or whatever it is. And you know, the hospitals here are empty. Like it's a really good time to go to emergency and not, you know, be seen in one hour rather than 45 hours, right? And it's made me think, and I haven't articulated this before, but it's made me think, 
medicine is a business in itself, right? And this is cynical me, that a lot of the things that we get treated for, maybe we don't need treatment for. And a lot of the things that we've actually been serviced and gotten used to and have created big business like surgeons and specialists and this, that, maybe we don't need, maybe we're over-serviced. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that there's some truth to that. That There's also been a a lot of lifestyle changes. So over here in the US, at least, uh, there's less people on the road. So people aren't dying from that. Um, And then how about this for an idea? A lot of people used to eat out and have huge meals and go home very full. We know that if you overeat, uh, it increases your chance of having a heart attack. And so perhaps not having so much restaurant food is is also healthy for the population. Now, you might be sued by the restaurant (laughs) business for saying that, but I totally agree with you because it happened to me. I mean, it's not that I mean, I would to go out maybe once or twice a week. That was my social life because we have made our social life eating and drinking. And I've had to rethink my social life now. And I've had to rethink, of, you know, now it's going to walk in a park or walking along a beach or whatever it is that you could do that's COVID friendly. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. But I do think that the business of disease is big business. I mean, look at pharma over there. Well, yeah, it, oh, it definitely is. And, and, and people, I think probably are not going to see a doctor as frequently because they're afraid of going to the doctor's office and they recover naturally. Emergencies are different, of course, mm-hmm. and I would say nobody stay home for that. But regular checkups and, and whatever, um, hopefully people aren't sick and they just don't realise. Um, but just on the restaurant thing, let me say something um, positive about restaurants, and I'm, I'm a big foodie, so the last thing I would want to do is to hurt restaurants just don't don't eat giant meals. That's the issue. Uh, often we overeat and, oh, you know, a piece of cake at the end won't hurt me. Well, one of the things in my book that I talk about is how moderation is key and things you can do to have a longer life now before we have these treatments. And one of those things is eating less and actually eating less often as well. And eating less often, having a, a period almost every day, I, I try to skip at least one meal that's because that turns on our body's defenses against aging and slows down the scratches on that CD. And you reap the benefits years later. We, we know this because we can measure the body's clock now. I can, shall I could take your blood and tell you roughly when you're going to die? And uh, while that might that? sound, yeah, yeah, we have a How? clock in our bodies. How? I'm glad you asked. So the, the scratches, we can read the scratches with a machine in the lab. It's not that hard. And where the scratches are and how much you've got tells me how old you are biologically, not chronologically. So theoretically, you could still be in your 40s or you could be in your 60s, um, and you, you really don't know until you start to get sick. But here's the important thing is that you can always act. We can even act very late in life. Uh, at least in, uh, in mouse experiments, we can treat a se- the equivalent of a 70-year-old mouse and make it run like it's 20 again. So it's never too late to start these things that I talk about in my book that will enhance your body's defenses. You know, being hungry occasionally is is part of that program. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I didn't know this was a thing, but I stopped eating dinner. And then I didn't know it was called that there was fasting or anything. I just stopped a couple of years ago and about five years ago now. You you feel better? Oh, yeah, sure. You know, I've lost a ton of weight and whatever. But I didn't know that it it was a fasting thing. Um, Mm. And, you know, I I don't do it every night because I have to be social. But, you know, at least four or five nights a week. You know, I'm lucky. And this is one one of the things I want to talk about. My parents, well, my mother particularly, so we're Lebanese-Australian and my parents immigrated to Australia, to Sydney in the 50s. But my mother comes from a family of nine and the first of her siblings only died last year. That's incredible. So that, it's incredible. They're in their 90s then? 80s, yeah, 80s, mid-80s. Yeah, yeah so she has still got seven brothers and sisters. And if you look at that as that generation, it's kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? And three of them live in Australia and the rest live in Lebanon. So they're, even so, they're both different lifestyles and yet they're all living to, to an old age. Mm. Um, talk to me about genetics. Well, genes can play a role, clearly. Uh, you can see that in certain families. Your family seems to be one of them where you're lucky enough to be dealt longevity genes. So the genes that we work on, these sirtuins, you can have versions of those that protect you, even if you don't do the right things. Uh, and then if you do the right things on top of good genetics, it's even better. But the good news about our research is that only about 20 to 30% of your lifespan and your health is genetic. The rest are these scratches, the the so-called, we call it epigenetic factors. And so a a large part of this, especially if you don't have the right genes, uh, you can have an even bigger impact just by doing the right things in your life, putting your body into a state of perceived adversity. So doing a little bit of uh, running on a treadmill is one of those things that makes your body say, wow, I might be in trouble or eating the right types of food and eating at the right time, olive oil, a component of olive oil turns on the genetic pathways that we work on. So we're finally understanding, we think, how diet and lifestyle are able to work in combination with having good genes. So why aren't there like scratches clinic in every, (laughs) on every corner of every street? Why aren't we all finding out where we're at and what we're going to do about it now? Uh, Well, you can now, now that I've given you the information. But yeah, I think eventually people will have a, a test in the doctor's office. And if you're over a certain age, let's say 50, uh, you can be prescribed, you know, for want of a better term, an anti-aging medicine. That's what the future looks like. And it's coming really quickly. There are at least 50 biotechnology companies working on some aspect of treating aging. And what will that anti-aging medicine look like and what will it do to me? So say now I would be eligible for that. One, is it a tablet a day? It very well could be. Some of the companies, I'm involved in about a dozen companies trying to help them along. So some of them are developing pills that you just take it and it mimics the benefits of fasting without you having to do it and exercise, as I mentioned. So yeah, a pill is most likely if you really want to reverse your whole age right now, all we have is this gene therapy technology I described. But yeah, eventually it can be, it can literally be a pill. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, what's exciting really is that the things that I'm telling you, even just five years ago, would have been ludicrous to even talk about, let alone publish in scientific journals. I mean, I was telling a friend of mine that I was speaking to you and he's like, oh, are you going down that track? And I was like, what do you mean? Of craziness. I said, no, this is science. I try to stick to science. <laughs> right? Sure. Har- Harvard would have kicked me out a long time ago exactly. if this wasn't good stuff. I read your credentials, I believe you. Hey, I want to run this by you too, male and female, right? And we talk about, and I was thinking about this when I was writing some of the questions I was going to discuss with you. I don't know if there's any truth behind this, but I've heard it all my life that women live longer than men. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Oh, it's absolutely true. So why is that true? Uh, nobody knows. That's the sad truth. Is that right? They really don't know. But there's also another statistic which I've read, and that is that even though women live longer, they spend more time in disability than men, which is not something you would wish for either. No. Uh, but we do need to figure that out. You know, even um, when we study mice, the, the sex makes a big difference, the gender of the mice. We can have a treatment for aging that works really well in females, but barely does anything for a male. And we just don't know why that is yet. It's one of the big unsolved problems. It could be the difference in hormones. It could be the difference, the genetic difference. Um, You and I are different by a whole chromosome. That's a big difference. You're you're Mm -hmm. close to being another species. And we don't know whether that's the reason or if it's lifestyle, but most likely it's uh, got to do with biology. I've got a theory. Do you want me to give you my layman's theory? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's not backed by science. But I feel as though women stay busier longer. Like we, we've always got projects. And, you know, when I see retired people, I feel that the guys often stay, you know, the, the man's at home and she's out there playing golf or she's up in the kitchen cooking. And, and I don't mean to be to stereotype here, but it, is, it seems that way. And I feel as though men become sedentary sooner than women. Yeah, well... Th- just anecdotally, I, I agree with you. Although I, I, I want to mention my father who has stayed active in retirement and in fact stayed so healthy in retirement that he went back to work. He's now 81 and he's, he's literally stronger and fitter than I am. We've tested this and he certainly has a, a better social life than me too. He's in Sydney. At 81, he still feels physically like he's in his 40s. But what he, the trick that he has is that he's stayed active He's paid a lot of attention to my research. Let's put it that way. He's if you do have a copy of, <laughs> yeah, he's taking some some of the supplements that I've been taking for a decade, and they don't seem to be hurting him that at all. Cheryl, I, I should mention. I think it's only fair to say if you have a copy of my book, it's on page three hundred and four. You can mm-hmm. skip to what my father and I do on a daily basis. A lot of people want to know that. But all of the lead up to that is explaining why we age and the amazing science, and then also a section on what implications this has for the planet and for families and the economy. That's really interesting. I want to get onto that. But before we get onto that, that whole idea of reversing aging, in terms of brain and memory, and I'm talking about that because I've got somebody very close to me now that's in their 80s and, you know, they're not calling it Alzheimer's, but I think it's called uh, confusion. or Delirium? Delirium. That's exactly it. Thank you. So say, for instance, you are at that stage of delirium and you took a tablet. Does that repair? Is there repair in that? I mean, I'm trying to get my head around how that Uh, works. Would you like to come work with me at Harvard? I would love to have your brain involved. Um, 
So these are the key questions. And uh, we are actually testing that. We, we, of course, do it in mice first. But the experiment is the following. We're taking old mice that have lost their memory. We're also, you can give mice something similar to Alzheimer's disease. And we're going to reprogram their brain to make it younger again and see what happens. My hope and prediction is that the memories will come back and that the delirium slash dementia will go away. If you have a young brain, why would there be a problem anymore? And there is some evidence from other labs that you can recover memories, even if you cannot access them currently, if you just treat the brain the right way. And that would really be something. I understand the problem is huge and there's nothing we can really do about these diseases right now. And if we had something that would rejuvenate the brain and bring back youthful thought and all the memories again, yeah, that that would be something that I'd be uh, very happy to give humanity. Wouldn't you just? I think that that would be the greatest gift because that kind of suffering is awful, isn't it? Well, it's the worst. And I don't want to knock my uh, colleagues who work very hard on medical research, but the approach that we've taken over the last essentially 200 years of let's find a disease, classify it, and find something that treats that only has led to very good heart medicines, right? Blood pressure is very treatable. But now we have nothing for the brain. And because medicines only treat typically one organ at a time, we're seeing an increase in dementias. And that's the result of of the way we do medicine. And so what excites me about the research that we do is that we can take care of the entire body. And that's the trick, I think. Um, I just want to touch a little bit on COVID and how that has affected the aged population. Firstly, why? Do we have a theory on that? Is it because they're already that they're immune compromised or what is it? Uh, well, I've, I've written about this. So any, anybody who's interested can just look for that. The simple answer is that the body is less resilient and the immune system has been depleted. Uh, what tends to happen as you get older is that constant infections will deplete your immune system and you need a complex immune system, a variety of different cell types that are ready for any challenge and older people sometimes only have a few different cell types and then just not able to cope. But the other thing that goes horribly wrong for some people is this cytokine storm, which is essentially the body overreacting and destroying itself. And uh, that also seems to be a part of the aging process that you cannot turn off the immune system when you need to. Exactly why that happens, we're not sure, but I can give you an interesting hypothesis. And that is that these genes that we work on that control aging they lose their activity as we get older. And, you know, I know it sounds like a person with a hammer is looking for a nail, but what's actually turned out to be the case is that the virus is actively trying to turn off these longevity genes so it can proliferate. And we find that the medicines that we're developing to turn those back on, which we have developed for aging, not for COVID, they turn out to be very likely to help the body fight the disease. And uh, there, there are anecdotal reports from doctors and we've just started treating our own patients in our study with some promising results. And so I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that... So is that therapy mm-hmm. or vaccine? No, this is a pill. Uh, it's taken uh, once or twice a day. And the idea is that we can counteract what the virus is trying to do is to turn off our disease defences and, and ageing defences. They're all the same thing. Right. And make older people's body more resilient. It's just been terrible what's happened to age to older people during this. Where, how far off a vaccine are we? Do you think? Uh, well, we have some vaccines that are that are looking like they they work. Actually, it's just a matter of 
ensuring their safety. You just cannot roll out a medicine for a billion people and have any chance of side effects. So as long as they turn out to be safe, I think that we'll start to see this rolled out in the first part of next year. But it takes a long time to make that amount of vaccine. And if you're a healthcare worker, you'll be the first in line. But I don't expect, well, Australia might be different because they seem to have their act together better than most countries. Here in the US, I don't think we'll have everybody vaccinated before this time next year. And in the meantime, I'm hoping that somebody will develop something to save older people uh, until that happens, such as you know the molecule we're working on. But the good news is that uh, there are more than 70 vaccines. I think we're, we're way over 100 now. And uh, someone's going to be able to do it. There's already vaccines being given in some countries, such as uh, Russia, and I heard just the UAE. We haven't heard of any negative side effects from those studies. Surely China's trialing something. We just don't know about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, probably. But yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic because humanity has never been united against something like this before. It's as though that we've been attacked by aliens, right? We've had a lot of War of the Worlds movies, but this is it for real. And, you know, we, we always win in the end. Um, it's just a question of when. That's interesting. It's interesting to look at it that way. Were you shocked? Were you, or do, were you one of those people that thought it's inevitable and it was going to happen one day? Or like for me, it came out of thin air. I mean, I just woke up one morning and thought, God, our lives have changed. That there's a small part in my book that talks about this coming and what's going to happen to the world. Unfortunately, I, I did predict that it was going to happen imminently. Um, and what was uh, very clear to me, because I'm a, a microbiologist trained in Sydney, is uh, when this came out in the news, actually first it came out in November, there was a, a radio report, but certainly by January, uh, I was already getting prepared. It, it, to me, it was inevitable that we were going to have this pandemic. And I remember going to the, the supermarket and filling up not so much with toilet paper, but with other things. And people are wondering, what am I doing? You know, and I, I could see this coming, unfortunately, and it has come. And the thing is, it's going to come again, uh, probably within our lifetimes as well. So we need to be prepared with, with not just a vaccine, but with a, a pill that can handle other viruses as well. And uh, so that's one of the things I'm really focused on. Mm. So just a little bit about ethical and in terms of population and, you know, in terms of business and industry, if we take a tablet and we're going to be well for the rest of our lives, what happens to the medical industry? You know, that's all the rich doctors living on the North Shore. There's so much, isn't there? Is the population, you know, is the world capable of having people live 100 years longer? Is I mean, there are so many questions, aren't there? It does raise a lot of questions, actually. Where do, where do we put people? How do we afford this? I, I thought we can afford it because we're not all being sick. You know, exactly. at that level. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right, so uh, I've modelled this with economists and with uh, Deloitte actually did a study for us in Australia um, and found that GDP goes up dramatically when you don't have to have so much, not healthcare, but sick care is what yeah. we practice. Um, and and then you, you get this multiplication, the positive feedback of having active members of society. I mean, take your relatives or, or my dad. If you're healthy, you do give back. You take care of grandkids and you, right. you're spending money and going out. This is a huge boon to economies and to People's well, you social stay working uh, longer, don't you? Well, you, I think no that's that's going to have to happen. But I'm proposing that we have uh, retraining. And uh, if you don't like your career and you have a longer, healthier life, you have a, a second, third, fourth chance at doing this. I think if you're if you really don't like your career and it's some it's hard labor, 
you know, who who would want somebody to have to do that for longer? But I think governments have a, a real obligation in this, this coming future to allow people to change professions multiple times and, and have the chance. And, and think about people who spend time raising kids, whether it's a, a male or female. Often you get to the point where the kids are leaving and, and now what? If you lived much longer, you could say, hey, it's just the beginning. Mm-hmm. This is probably regressing a little bit in our conversation. But say, for instance, you're a smoker. That arguably is what it seems to be one of the greatest causes of disease and all disease. Um, and you know that because every time you fill out a form, they say, do you smoke or whatever. So let's say you were taking the tablet and you were smoking. Does that reverse the damage of smokers? Uh, well, our technology has been tested on smoking in animals, and there are other labs that do that. We don't. But one of the molecules we work on is the molecule from red wine. If anyone has upped their red wine consumption because of this molecule called resveratrol, that's because of our research. So <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, but no, but but seriously, that molecule protected cells and uh, and animals from smoking. But let me say something about smoking because it's really, it's important to me. One is my mother died from smoking and she plays a role in the book. And she's an example of sick care, of what a life shouldn't be like versus my father as a life that we should all aspire to and different ways they led their lives. My mother didn't care about her health and paid the consequences. We can measure now aging very accurately. As I, as I said, I can predict when people are going to die When you look at a smoker's age, almost without any exception, their bodies are older than their actual birthdays would suggest. So it doesn't just make you sick, it literally ages you. So I would encourage anybody who is smoking to try and wean themselves off it. It's not just bad for your lungs, it really does affect aging in your entire body. One thing that we do know though, is if you do quit, then your body can recover surprisingly well. That's good news, isn't it? Okay. All right. Well, um, I do think I'd better let you go. We've gone a little bit over. Incredibly interesting. I love your work and I love your generosity in giving me this time. I thank you so much for that. Well, Cheryl, it's, it's been really great to talk to you. And again, if you want to join our lab meetings and throw ideas out, you're most welcome. I'm there. I'm there. I just need another job, right? Hey, listen, I was going to say this. Um, I've got a 14-year-old dog who I absolutely adore, John Brown. And I'm just wondering that when you get to the pill, if you can just send me one for John Brown, I promise I won't take it, but I'll I'll give it to him because I'd like him to live to 200. Well, my brother is working on on medicines for dogs that will make them live longer and healthier. Okay, well, I need your brother's number. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, David. Thanks, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.